This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agrotourism Training. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we have a very special guest. Uh, Ms. Marin McKenna is joining me. Marin is an independent journalist and author specializing in public health, global health, and food policy. She is a senior fellow of the Center of the Study of Human Health at Emory University, where she teaches health and science writing and storytelling and media literacy. She is the recipient of the 2019 AAAS Kavli Award for magazine writing for her piece, Plague Years in the New Republic, and she is the author of the 2017 bestseller, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created uh, modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, uh, which was published by National Geographic Books in 2017. Uh, She received the 2018 Science and Society Award for that book, making her a two-time winner of the prize. She also wrote Superbug and has written and spoken extensively on the overuse of antibiotics in the food chain and its impact on public health. She has been a guest on this show uh, quite a few times over the past decade, but it's been a couple of years now. I don't think not since Big Chicken, Marin. So welcome back to What Doesn't Kill You. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be back. Well, it's a pleasure to have uh, such an informed and wide-ranging mind as your own uh, to comment on COVID-19 and the impact, and, and also to have somebody who is, in fact, a science writer um, who can uh, unpack some of the, um, I think, misperceptions and confusions around COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And the reason I contacted you uh, was because um, a piece, a, some, a friend of mine sent me a piece from The Guardian uh, that suggested a link between COVID-19 and factory farming, by which I mean that coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, is a direct result of how industrial-scale agriculture is causing novel viruses and then passing those novel rice, uh, and then those viruses are then passed on to people. Now, this was not by no means the only time I've seen this hypothesis, but I could not find any science that supported that, and I was wondering what you thought. So... The reason I'm laughing is because I worry when I respond to this, it's going to sound like I am in some way a defender of the existing food system. And I just want to make it clear that I'm not, right? Right. I I think of myself as someone who has been an informed critic of very large-scale, industrial-scale meat animal production. It's clear that meat animal production, as it is conducted on a large scale, has a number of adverse environmental impacts. And also, as I talked about in the book, Big Chicken, also whomps up antibiotic resistance around the world. Absolutely. And so the industrial scale, meat animal production, not good on a number of axes. That said, I think it is a step too far to say that industrial scale animal production is responsible for the spread of this novel coronavirus or The previous coronaviruses that we have run into in the past decade, which is MERS, M-E-R-S. Right. uh, It's actually more than a decade, sorry. MERS was about a decade ago, or the original SARS in 2003. Right. All of these are viruses that very clearly in their viral sequences emerge from wildlife. 
not from domesticated animals. Mm -hmm. So the contact that took place is contact between wildlife and humans, whether that's in the sense of actually buying or trapping the wildlife and eating them, or in the sense of, for some other emerging viruses, like Nipah virus, for instance, kind of being in the vicinity of them or having an intermediate host in the chain. But I just don't see that industrial scale production of chicken or pigs, which are the main animals produced in that way in China, can be tied back into the transmission of coronavirus from wildlife to humans. Well, thank you for making me feel like I'm really smart because that's what I thought too. <laughs> I was just not having it. And I I actually got into sort of, you know, one of those stupid Facebook wrangles with somebody who I know has the best intentions in the world. But I was just like, when she started spouting that, and this was even before I read the Guardian piece and, and several other pieces, as I mentioned, um, I was like, well, where's the science for that? I don't, I'm not seeing the science that would suggest that this particular or even any of the other ones, the SARS or the MERS, emerged from factory farming. It emerged from, uh, SARS supposedly came from a camel. I believe MERS uh, emerged from bats. No, it's the other way or around. Or the other way around, excuse me. <laughs> right. MERS from camels, SARS from bats. Right, because yeah. MERS is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So that would make sense because they ain't no camels as far as I know in uh, China. So, but anyway. <laughs> Maybe in the Gobi Desert. Maybe. Yeah, so, exactly. Look, I, you know, I get the, I like you. I, I, I mean, if your inbox is, is like my inbox, then you have gotten this claim a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, and so have I, you know, and, I, and a number of them have been claims advanced by a variety of animal welfare or vegan advocacy organizations. Yes, who most are often. Yeah. Fundamentally opposed to meat animal production. Who think that is a bad it's a bad thing for the planet, it's a bad thing for humans, it's a bad thing for animals, and it just ought to stop. And while I am sympathetic to their desire to make their point at a time when the world's attention and every journalistic beat is centered on this one story, yeah, I just think it's going too far. Yeah. I do too. I mean, there's lots of other things, as you said, uh, that you can point the finger at and say, well, that's a result of factory farming. This is not one of them. But since we've established that, I wanted to sort of push on into the concept of a wet market. First of all, for people who don't know what a wet market is, a wet market is is literally an, a market, an open market usually, um, where animals are slaughtered on the spot and taken home. And they arrive at the market in sort of baskets and boxes. I've seen this. If you've been to any South Asian or Asian country, you have seen this too. Um, you know, they the people come in with their bicycles or their motorbikes and they have cages full of roost of chickens or they might be carrying a pig. <laughs> I've seen all of that. Um, so that's what a wet market is. But how, I'm wondering where, what is the science behind the way one of these uh, animals, like a pangolin, like a camel or a bat, could somehow mutate into a coronavirus? How does that happen? So... I want to say a thing about wet markets first yeah. before we get to the potential virology here. Okay. And that is that, uh, so like you, I have been in a lot of wet markets in South and Southeast Asia and on the Pacific Rim. Uh, and they, they differ widely in their quality and their hygiene. So to be clear, <laughs> what, yeah. when we talk about a wet market, 
um, I didn't know this until recently, that actually is, that's a, it, it doesn't just refer to them being like wet on the floor because they hose down the blood. It's actually a description for a type of sort of a category of groceries or foods in Mandarin and Cantonese. I think it's in both. I um, had no idea. Thank uh, you. And, it, and it's a, as opposed to literally dry goods, which are things like flour and noodles and right. cloth and things like that. <laughs> what, what is like things that are living, animals yeah. and so forth. So fish is included, for example. Right, exactly. And gotcha. so I have been in wet markets in uh, China in particular, both before and after the mid-2000s concern about bird flu which caused tremendous attention to be paid to the wet markets. What's underlying yeah. the, you know, the, the existence of wet markets is, is not just a lack of Western supermarkets as they exist, but also a, a sort of positive cultural preference for being very exacting about the quality of your food. Yep. For in the case of a chicken, you see the chicken live, you look at, at its eyes to see if they're clear, you feel its crop, you check out its musculature, and only then do you decide whether that is a chicken you want to buy, and it's slaughtered on the spot so that you know no fraud has been involved, right. and that you got the chicken that you chose. I should point out also that there are wet markets like this in New York City, right? Yes, there they, are. They are not necessarily Chinese. They, are, they cater to a variety of ethnicities, but there are markets in New York City where you go in and you yep. look the chicken in the eye and you say, I'm taking that chicken. And they take it to the back room and they chop it up. Yep. So, so the, I, I am concerned that, that when we talk about wet markets and we talk about you know, diseases emerging from the Pacific Rim, that there is an implicit kind of exoticizing and stigmatizing around food practices that I think is just not helpful. Yeah. So, so, but so yes, so fundamentally you are correct about wet markets. And some wet markets will have just like, you know, the vegetables over there and the noodles in the middle and over in the next room are the live animals that are becoming dead animals. Yeah. Or fish. And there right. are some um, where there also will be sort of exotic meats. And that includes a variety of wildlife. Now, precisely because in 2003, SARS, the original SARS, the original internationally spreading coronavirus, was traced first to civet cats, mm -hmm. which are a wildlife that is, was sold as food, and then beyond the civet cats to bats, which seem to harbor coronaviruses sort of natively, um, there were supposed to be controls about wildlife trade and wildlife eating in China. Uh, it is questionable how much those were followed. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are these contentions that in the market in Wuhan, where, where um, COVID first seems to have been perceived, that both domesticated animals and, and wildlife for eating were being sold in the same market. What that potentially means is that there was some viral contamination uh, between, I mean, some people have advanced that there may have been some viral contamination that went from a, uh, a held bat or pangolin or whatever. I don't think we're clear on the, if there was an intermediate host and, and somehow was passed to a domesticated animal and it was taken out of the market that way. I think it's much more likely that if there were wildlife, wild food present, wildlife there to be eaten, that the contact was direct between a person and wildlife. Yeah. Now, wet markets or wildlife for eating are not the only way that 
wild viruses from the wild get passed into the human population. Most of the most serious diseases that we have in the world originally jumped from wildlife. And sometimes it's because we ate them, and sometimes it's because we live alongside them, and sometimes it's because we pressed into their territory and disrupted their evolutionary relationships. Oh. Uh, and so, so Ebola is an example of that, right? Ebola is a disease oh. of non-human primates. And, and in sub-Saharan Africa, human settlement pushed into areas that would have been far previously just forested areas and essentially infringed on the territory of the virus. Huh. So the virus would have been shed by a primate host and then people moving into that area would pick it up from, say, I don't know, handling droppings or... Or, it, I mean, it may have been that they actually were eating the non-human primates. Maybe they were eating the monkeys. I don't know. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so there's, but, and this, it did, the point that I wanted to make <laughs> before getting into the, the specifics of different diseases is that we've known for quite a while, we've known from before SARS, we've known basically since Ebola, the first, uh, you know, documented out, the first outbreak of Ebola documented by science in the West, yeah, 1976. And so, uh, although the, I believe the perception of the virus goes back further than that into the 1950s, but I would have to look that up and I'm not going to do that right now. So That's let fine. me skate on that. Um, the point is that we've known for decades now that the interface between the wild world and the human world is a place that viruses jump over. And for, and for just that reason, we've known that we ought to be doing surveillance at that wild interface for any new organism that jumps across it, whether what helps it to jump across is our catching them or our eating them or our disrupting the places that they live. And uh -huh. there have been a whole network of detection uh, systems, uh, the largest of which was called PREDICT, and it's a a USAID-funded project shared by five institutions, including one of the University of California's, um, the Smithsonian's National Zoo, uh, the EcoHealth Alliance, uh, Columbia University, and I'm, I, my apologies to the, apologies to the fifth okay. entity because I can't remember who they are. Um, and for ten years, Predict has been out at the wild interface identifying viruses that either are jumping or are in danger of jumping to humans and disrupting human health. PREDICT had two five-year grants from USAID. The second grant ended last fall and the funding was concluded uh -huh. just at the point at which uh, the new coronavirus was starting to emerge. Now, I don't actually think, I, I am not subject to conspiracy theories. I don't think this was deliberate in the sense of uh, someone in the administration thought, oh, we don't care if humans get infected, let's just cancel that. It's that the funding cycle ended and no yeah. one thought it was worth renewing. Since wow. coronavirus has emerged, however, USAID actually has given Predict a six-month extension. So they now have funding at least through the first half of this year. And the some of the people who are in Predict, including um, the EcoHealth Alliance, who are based uh, in New York City, I believe, they have been proposing for quite a while that what we need is actually a, a spooled up version of this, something they would call the Global Virome Project, in mm. which they would do the largest possible surveillance. 
for viruses at the wild human interface to try to figure out what's coming our way. Right, right. Fascinating, Marin. I had no idea. But then <clears throat> let's talk for a second again about the about the these viruses. Okay, when when we when we talk about a coronavirus, especially a novel coronavirus, meaning it is brand new and nobody's ever seen it before. Um, the fact is, is that there are tons of coronaviruses that range from being the common cold to uh, to all of the coronaviruses that uh, inhabit domestic animals, which is where I think uh, people get the conspiracy idea that that the factory farming is what causes things like coronavirus to happen. But but it is true that uh, you know PEDV, which is porcine uh, something diarrhea. Uh, coronavirus right. scours, which is very common, yeah. right? And scours, which comes, to, which is bovine fever exactly, and also I think affects sheep, and 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 even avian flu to a certain extent can sometimes be traced to um, a coronavirus. Isn't that right? So avian flu is a flu. And it's a flu. flu. Excuse me. Um, You're right. Yeah. You know, the, the flus that affect humans are 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 in their origin are all traceable back to wild waterfowl. Wild uh -huh. waterfowl carry avian carry influences around the world. Right. Um, and without affecting them. And they pretty much literally poop them on us all all year long all around the world. Right. <laughs> um, waterfowl are not our friends. Uh, and um, sometimes they, you know, sometimes they, they go through a great deal of passage of multiple generations through humans and become the flus that affect us every day uh -huh. or every part of the year. Sometimes they leap more directly from uh, that other species to us. And then we get the, the uh, strains of flu that are not seasonal flus, but are like swine flu, flu, like swine flu, right? right. Which was uh, 2009. Swine was a H1N1 swine flu. That's right. By surprise, because it emerged after the end of flu season in April. Uh, yes. Associated with, um, uh, uh, I am not remembering the exact beginning of that outbreak. I'm going to get it confused with another one, but it arose on the the California Mexican border, uh -huh. and you know caused a great deal of of illness, spread very rapidly, and eventually now has become one of our seasonal flu strains after you know ten years of adaptation. 1981, sorry, 1918 was also believed to be a swine flu, also uh -huh. a um, an H1N1, H5N1, which people were very concerned about from about 1997 to about 2005 or you know the end of the 2000s. That was a bird flu. Um, there have been other bird flus that have been a problem since then. So there are definitely there are things that we are encountering all the time, right? That are unpredictably leaping from the wild world into our lives and disrupting our health. Well, that's what I find so curious about this is like, why don't, I mean, we have all these coronaviruses around us, especially in factory farming settings, um, or even in just anybody who grows domestic wild, you know, livestock. Um, and yet those, those do not jump into the human host. And I think that's what's so perplexing about this, that it would, you know, that it would, I mean, maybe I'm being dense, but, you know, that it would be so easily transmitted from a bat or a pangolin. And yet, um, scours or bovine virus or whatever, we don't get that. I, I don't know what that is. Why, why is that, Marin? Explain it to me, Professor. <laughs> so this is the point at which we should state that I am not a virologist. No, okay. <laughs> I am barely an epidemiologist. Yeah. But you know, there, there are there are pathogens all through the world that just that don't affect us because they they essentially can't get a foothold in our systems. I see. 
the reason that that flus affect us is because the literal sort of like latching on points in our bodies in our for flu it's the it's in the cells in the lining of the airways and the lungs mm-hmm. have they are similar to the latching on points that the virus takes advantage of in other species so in particular the lung receptors in a pig right are very similar to the lung receptors in a human. So a virus that has been a flu that has been affecting a pig, find very, it's very easy for that flu to take hold in a human. It doesn't have to do a lot of adaptation in gotcha. order to fit it into there. Um, but there are other, you know, other diseases of wildlife that affect other organ systems in the wildlife that we might not be exposed to. I or see. when we're exposed to them, they just, they kind of, it's like a bank shot. They just kind of like slide off. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a nice analogy. Um, so to talk about vaccines, because there are vaccines for things like the PEDV or, you know, the bovine uh, virus, uh, respiratory virus or scours or any of these other things. And some of them, which this interested me as well, some of these vaccines are more efficient, more successful than others. So what does that tell us about how we approach developing a vaccine or something like novel coronavirus? Well, it depends on what you mean by efficient or, or how well they work. So let's remember to begin with that some of the vaccines that exist that we're talking about are vaccines that are, they're only veterinary vaccines, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the vaccines that we use in animals, uh, whether they're animals that we eat or other kinds of companion animals like cats and dogs and horses, sure. they're certainly examined by regulatory authorities, but they don't go through the kind of clinical trials that vaccines that are going into humans do. So the bar for testing a vaccine for a human is a lot higher. So that may be why, you know, we can look at uh, um, commercial poultry, for instance, and say, oh, well, there's a vaccine for salmonella. Why don't we have a vaccine for salmonella in humans? Well, the vaccine against salmonella in humans would be uh, a heavy lift scientifically and regulatorily for probably not that much gain in income because there would be a, a limited number of situations in which you would use it. Hmm. So that said, getting getting a vaccine, particularly getting a vaccine for this novel coronavirus, is going to be difficult because it's going to be a brand new vaccine. The flu vaccine, by contrast, we get one of those every year. And one of the reasons why we're able to get it every so first we should say the reason why we have to get one every year is that flu is a, is a virus that does a lot of mutation every year. Right. This year's flu strain is not like that last year's flu strain. And therefore, last year's flu shot doesn't necessarily protect us against this year's flu shot. So what regulatory authorities like the FDA and the vaccine manufacturers who interface with them, what they have done is they've designed a flu vaccine system that is kind of like a cassette deck where there's a, that's probably not a perfect analogy, but there's a, there's a certain, there's a certain aspect of the vaccine that doesn't change from year to year. And that was licensed long ago. And then there's a part of the vaccine that sort of gets slid in and out every year. And that's the part that corresponds to the most recent strain of flu Ah. because they can substitute just those pieces They don't have to go through full relicensure and full clinical trials every year. If Uh they did, we would never have a flu vaccine in time. We barely have one in time now. But we have no 
coronavirus vaccine for humans. And therefore, we're going to have to start absolutely from zero. That means, even though the, the, some of the earliest formulas, and there's going to be a number of them, have, been, have started their phase one trials already, all that means is that a half dozen or so people are getting a shot in their arms to see if it's safe for them to see if, mm-hmm. if it hurts them, if it makes their arms hurt, if it gives them a fever, if it kills them, we hope it doesn't. <laughs> right. uh, the point is that those that phase one trial, phase one trials are only about safety. You don't get into does it work and does it work in large numbers of people until you get a lot further along in the trial process. So we have to start, for, because we have to start from nowhere and because this is going to be such a large vaccine deployment, we're talking mm-hmm. probably about very large trials, which means we're talking about at the most optimistic, maybe a year from now, yeah. having a vaccine and and probably longer. And Marin, did they never try to develop vaccines for MERS and for SARS? And is that why they're starting from ground zero? I recognize that this is a novel strain, but it is still a basic coronavirus. So were there, there were never any... Let's think about why why people make vaccines, right? Vaccines in in this country, at least, vaccines are made by private enterprise. Mm -hmm. They may be funded in some portion of their research by the federal government, probably through the National Institutes of Health. But in the end, they're going to be a commercial product and they're going to be bought in, in the case of the Ebola vaccine, for instance, it was actually bought by governments either to be held uh, as a sort of protective thing or to be dispensed to people in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, But flu vaccine every year is bought by healthcare systems and by the federal children's vaccination program and by individual people going to Walgreens, right? Someone has to buy that product, whether it's healthcare systems or individuals or governments. Mm -hmm. For the most part, governments do not do pre-buys of vaccine large enough to cover an entire population. And certainly the companies aren't going to pay for it. So a company needs to know at the back end, that at the back end of the process, this is a product that is going to have a market. Unless we completely change the system, unless we agree up front, you are going to make 300 million doses of vaccine and we, the US government, are going to buy all of it. Um, And so so there's no particular reason, you know, SARS arose in, well, the, it arose in southern China, probably the, the, the first dim reports were November of 2002, but it broke out into the rest of the world in Hong Kong in February 2003. Right. And it was over by June. In, in between February and June, it went to uh, something like two dozen countries. It sickened slightly over 8,000 people. It killed about 775, 774, if I remember correctly. Right. That is a very small vaccine market. Yes. You know, if, 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 if SARS, the original SARS, had kept going, we might have looked for a vaccine for it. But, it, it, but out of a combination of the characteristics of that virus and the suppression undertaken by countries... Uh, of various kinds, it petered out. MERS also, for the most part, has been a disease of Uh flare-ups. The the largest single outbreak, again, if I'm remembering correctly, because I haven't looked at this data in a while, was not actually in the Middle East where MERS arose. And that's, as you said, that's what the ME in MERS stands for. But actually in South Korea, where it was accidentally imported into a hospital. But again, you know, this, this has been, it's been a disease of blips. 
no one is going to create a new vaccine for blips. Right. Now, it certainly would be nice if someone had looked at the original SARS and said, oh, wow, we should have the backbone of a coronavirus vaccine on the shelf because it would be great if we ever get another one breaking out from wildlife to be ready. Right. But that, in fact, didn't happen. And it's kind of not surprising uh, that that happened, didn't happen because, yeah. you know, we, the, uh, the, I spend the other part of my journalistic life looking at antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. Yeah. And antibiotic resistance kills almost 50,000 Americans a year, 30,000 Europeans a year, maybe yep. 700,000 people around the world a year. And we still can't get good new antibiotics because the economics don't justify companies making them. Companies, in fact, are dropping out of antibiotic manufacture. Jesus. That's cheerful. <laughs> Let's take a quick break here for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Marin McKenna to talk a bit more about COVID-19. Please stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agritourism Training. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. These training workshops are on demand and can be downloaded at any time. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The on-demand agritourism training will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience, anytime, on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available to purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2020 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Uh, this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights, in case you are just tuning in, which actually makes no sense because if you're listening to this podcast, you're just going to listen to the whole thing. But anyway, never mind that. So let's talk a little bit before we have to go here because I don't want to keep you too long, Marin. But um, I'm sure you've seen uh, the reports on the fact that uh, numerous, not numerous, but at this point, three or four major uh, meat livestock livestock processing plants have been shuttered due to uh, the labor force being infected with COVID-19. In some cases, like in the hundreds of people, you know, say a plant employs, uh, you know, 700 people, 300 will have come down with COVID-19. Um, and then there's also another, another story that I read yesterday or the day before where they're going to slaughter 2 million chickens on the Delmar Peninsula, which for those of you who don't know, is a big chicken, a big Tyson area. Um, they grow a lot of chickens. I know Marin has been there probably <laughs> more times than she'd like to uh, remember. More um, times than I would admit to for the sake of my sources. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but in any case, they have to they have to not only slaughter these animals, but bury them because they don't have enough healthy labor to process them and put them into the um, into the you know distribution channels. 
So wow. should should consumers, you've been seeing this, right? So should consumers be worried, for example, that workers uh, who are notoriously poorly uh, treated and often do not take sick time off because they're not paid for it or they might lose their jobs, should uh, people be worried that workers are shedding virus onto their food, um, whether it's meat or really any food? Like people who work in the fields, they're going to be getting a lot of coronavirus cases there. That just hasn't swelled up yet. Um, but it's going to happen. Is so, there a way that people will get it from that? I am not aware at this point of any science that says that coronavirus on a piece of food, whether it's a protein or a piece of produce, is a risk to a consumer, partly because it's unclear how much exposure there actually is for any one piece of food, and secondarily because there's going to be a certain time lag of transport in which right. the virus would be likely to die. And also because, you know, you can sanitize food when you bring it into your, uh, the, your, your kitchen. The main way we sanitize it is either by washing it in the case of produce or cooking it in the case of protein. Right. What I would be more concerned about is the human rights aspect. Of oh, for this. sure. You know, that, that <laughs> uh, the reason that so many workers in, processing plants for meat are getting sick is because they're working together in such close quarters mm -hmm. with insufficient protective equipment for you know, yeah. insufficient protective equipment for everyone right now, because we let our supply chains break, which is a completely separate conversation. Yeah. Right. Um, and they have no, because they are low wage workers. Many of them are undocumented, whether the industry will admit to it or not. Uh, they have no ability to push back against their employers and say, our conditions need to be better you are putting us at risk. And though we seem to think of the workers as disposable, you know, we, we, it is only when the plants themselves shrink, shriek to a halt that we start to think, oh, <laughs> this occupational exposure for the workers is actually going to affect the bottom line of the companies. You know, a similar thing yeah. is happening in, um, in California right now, with, and it's going to start happening in the South where I live, with... Um, with produce, with crops in the field, sure. row crops and tree crops, that there are, for a variety of reasons, starting with the, the uh, consulate that grants agricultural visas over the Mexican border was shut down because yep. of coronavirus risks. We are not going to have farm workers this year. We're not going to have legal farm workers. And who knows whether we're going to have the undocumented farm workers whom, again, we rely on, whether we admit it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we may have profound food shortages. That's my not contention. Food doesn't exist, but because we have allowed, we, we did not allow for the supply chain of people that gets it to us. Right. It's really fascinating to me. I have, um, I will admit, I live a block and a half from a Whole Foods and I am terribly vulnerable to going to the Whole Foods every couple of days because it's just so easy. But I've made a real commitment since this started to, to go to my local farmer's market. Um, and they have to, I have to say my, the farmer's market in my neighborhood has been incredibly responsible. They have, they expanded their area. They excluded all the hot food people and all the, you know, crafts people and the people playing yep. music and so forth. They asked all of their vendors who they separated the booths. They asked all the vendors to um, commit to eff effectively CSA boxes. They're not CSAs in the sense of being committed for a season, but that you're, you're buying the box in advance. Right. Um, and that's a very smart move. Um, 
So the folks I have been buying vegetables from, they open up their box orders at 10 o'clock on Tuesday, and they were sold out by 1130 this morning. Wow. The guy who in that particular market who sells pastured poultry, uh, he has been sold out for a month. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He he had to wait until he could, you know, sort of staff up his next crop, right? Like, I guess he bought more you know, bought more chickens because, you know, pasture poultry have a life cycle that is longer than an industrial chicken's life cycle. That's so right. it's been fascinating to me, the degree to which people are turning back to direct contact with their food producers. And at the start of this, I had a conversation with um, a farm that I'm close to. They, I talk about them in the book, Big Chicken. They're called White Oak Pastures. Sure. They're the largest organic property in Georgia, maybe in the Southeast. And they right. are beyond organic regenerative 10 species farm uh and their meat is fantastic and yes i i they're three hours south of atlanta i got in touch i asked if they were going to be coming up here did they need anybody um spreading the word you know were they going to do csa drops and in the kindest possible way they laughed at me and said we are already so busy that yeah. we we can't even make that drive <laughs> and well, they're lucky and the, they have the, the labor um jenny harris who uh runs the farm with her dad will yep she said you know i would never say that this is a that there's a positive to something like this because it's going to be terrible but i do believe that this is going to reinforce for people how much they need to know their farmer and i think yeah. she's absolutely right yeah, I, I, I would I would agree with you. Um, to go back a little bit to when we were talking about meatpacking plants and the lack of protections, I mean, I actually did some uh, reading up before we have this conversation about what, you know, now that uh, JBS has had to shutter a huge plant, Cargill has closed a big plant, Tyson has closed a huge plant, there was the 2 million uh, chicken slaughter I just mentioned. So, and that's going to keep going. Um, but I am not reading a single thing in the trade magazines like I read Drovers and meet uh you know meeting place and so on I don't see any efforts on the part of uh these packers to uh do much in the way of offering protection to their workers and you know I don't want to I don't want to make this into a big di- issue but I mean it is a big issue but but I'm just wondering if you uh in your in, in your reading had seen uh something that I might have missed about how they're they're going to cope with this because everybody's saying oh don't worry you may not have the variety but there's always going to be meat or there's always going to be this you know there'll always be poultry I, you know maybe not I mean, like we were saying, I think we're going to be seeing some very big food shortages, and I think we're going to see some very serious price gouging uh, and um, price collusion, um, which has already been the case in the uh, meatpacking industry. And I, I was just so I, I was just curious, Marion, if you had seen anything about um, you know p- sort of a public relations uh, press release saying yes, we're you know we're getting PPE for all of our plant personnel, and we're you know. Cl- uh, giving them more space in between the workers and so on, because that ain't the way a line is set up. I mean, it would be a huge retooling for them to have to do anything of the kind. Sure. But I was uh, just curious. Uh, slaughter lines are various stations on slaughter lines. Workers are, at least in chicken plants, workers are shoulder to shoulder. Absolutely. So it's the same I, in a beef packing plant. I yeah. read a fair number of the, the beef and poultry industry publications. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen anything that like what you describe. But to be fair... You know, first, this is a an, a worldwide outbreak that's three months old, right? Yeah. Um, and large corporations don't necessarily turn on a dime. But second, let's game this out for a minute. If they were going to use PPE for the, if they wanted to buy PPE for their workers, where are they going to get it from? 
They are they yeah. would be at at the back of the, somewhere in the line with yeah. the entire rest of the world. We don't have most of that manufacture in the United States. And we allowed it to go offshore, which was our mistake. China used all of its production to control its own outbreak. Now China is, in fact, starting to to open up and starting to ship PPE again. But what's the correct kind of PPE for somebody who's standing in a miasma of like blood and, you know, droplets in an air hose? You know, it's not the kind of gown that someone wears in a hospital room, a cloth surg- or, you know, melt fabric, melt woven fabric surgical mask isn't going to do you any good. You're going to need things that are, um, you're going to need like transparent face shields and clothing that's yeah. waterproof. So like a hazmat suit. Procuring this, this is a profound procurement challenge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if it's taking them, I hope they think about it, but if it's taking them a while to get to grips with it, I think we have to be realistic that it's going to take a while. Yeah. And then the question is, is how long, once they do it, will they do it with commitment? (laughs) Because in truth, uh, there's plenty of stuff that gets spread around on those packing floors. Um, You remember Ted Genoway's famous, uh, well, it was in his his book, The Chain, but also it was, I think, a magazine. I think the New Yorker ran it as a standalone where the people were blowing the pig brains out and they got the crazy brain virus. Mm -hmm. I mean... Mm -hmm. All those people should be wearing PPE, full-on hazmat suits. So it isn't just, you know, to save you from each other's germs, but also from things you can collect on the on the packing floor. Um, but just to, okay, we got to wrap it up here because I know I promised you it would be only 40 minutes and we're at that point. But going forward, Marin, what, how do you see things changing? Or, or, or will they just, you know, once we get through the worst of this, we'll just go back to the status quo? Or do you actually see... Uh, any kind of change in the system uh, for the better as a result of the pandemic and its impacts? You know, it's odd. I have, as a scary disease person, I have been Mm. spending most of my career anticipating something like what has been happening over the past couple of months. And it still has completely shocked me that it absolutely (laughs) happened. And sometimes I feel like I'm in kind of a dream state where it isn't real. Uh, And I have been so busy that I find it hard to kind of game out for myself all the ways in which our society is going to change. But I do think our society is going to change until we can get the threat of this permanently under control with a vaccine. And that's a couple of years. Yeah. You know, it could change things for the better in that it it uh, reminds people of the dangers of loneliness and it reinforces connections between family and friends. It could change things for the small actors in the food system and help them find markets. Uh, it could break supply chains in unpredictable ways. Yeah. Um, but I think that I honestly think we have not begin begun to really recognize all the ways in which this could create profound change in our society and the food system is going to be one of those affected. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some changes for the better. That's for sure. But in the meantime, uh, I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining me today and giving us the benefit of your experience and uh, information. It was it nice a joy. Thanks yeah, it was me. great. Great. <laughs> of course. I, I'd like to, you know, say we'll, we'll do it again soon. <laughs> But we'll see how this plays out. I mean, I'd be grateful for your uh, scientific intelligence uh, to you know, bear on this subject as we move through this process of, of getting on beyond uh, you know, individual isolation and back into a society that is somewhat functional. So 
Um, we'll we'll oh, stay in touch, time. Marin. Yeah, right. we'll stay in touch. Take care. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks so much to my engineer and to my sponsor. And thanks you to my listeners uh, for staying with us today. And uh, remember, we are a nonprofit or not-for-profit. We are all working remotely right now. I just want to remind people if the uh, quality of the sound is not what you're used to. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this before. I know I've mentioned it before, but just a reminder, we're working with an online platform. Um, it's not like we're all in a studio together. That ain't happening. Um, and just remember that uh, we all do our best to bring you the information that we think is important for you to know about your uh, food food chain. Um, so if you have an extra buck and gosh, I, <laughs> I know it's hard to find right now, but do uh, consider making a donation, however small, to Heritage Radio Network. You can press the beating heart on the right-hand side of our website. Uh, and, uh, you know, just whatever you can offer is gratefully received. Thanks, folks. See you next week. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.